This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Exelon, a Fortune 100 energy company and the nation's largest clean power producer, and Pepco, an Exelon company providing safe, reliable, affordable energy in Washington, D.C. and Maryland. On Wednesday, November 28th, Environmental Protection Agency Acting Administrator Andrew Wheeler sat down for a live one-on-one interview with Washington Post's senior national affairs correspondent Juliet Eilprin to talk about his first five months at the helm of the EPA and what's next for the agency. Other speakers, including California Attorney General Javier Becerra, as well as leading industry experts, provided insight into America's energy needs and talked about how to balance economic imperatives and environmental protection. In this segment, Environmental Protection Agency Acting Administrator Andrew Wheeler joins Washington Post's Senior National Affairs Correspondent Juliet Alprin to discuss his plans for the EPA, including the removal of regulatory barriers. They will also discuss a recently released federal study on climate change. Let's listen. Good morning. I'm Juliet Eilprint, Senior National Affairs Correspondent for The Washington Post, joined by EPA Acting Administrator Andrew Wheeler, who is also the President's nominee to serve permanently in that position. Thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Good morning. And I wanted to let our audience know that you can tweet us questions using the hashtag postlive, and I'll try to get to some of them later on. Um, Right now, we will head off, as uh, I'm sure many of you know, Mr. Wheeler started his career at EPA as a special assistant uh, in the Office of Toxics and Pollution Prevention, worked there, did uh, two decently long stints, first on Capitol Hill and then in the private sector before rejoining the agency as deputy administrator in March and then assumed helm of the agency in early July. So clearly one of the things that's been in the news lately is the release of the National Climate Assessment, mm-hmm. which uh, many, uh, several EPA scientists contributed to, and the president, as well as some other cabinet members, have weighed in on the assessment since it's been released, most recently with the president telling my colleagues, Josh Dossie and Phil Rucker, yesterday that, you know, commenting at length on climate change, describing himself as, you know, among others with uh, (coughs) high intelligence as being not such believers in climate change and the role that humans play in driving it and, you know, questioning various aspects of the assessment. Could you explain how you see this Hallmark report that the government released and and the role that the government plays in that? First, I want to recognize the the hard work of a lot of federal employees in putting together that assessment. It was people from leave um, 14 different agencies and departments over several years. But, but I think it's important to, to recognize that the majority of that report was written in 2016, and it was at the direction of the previous administration. It's been going through review over the last two years. And I, I think a lot of the, the criticism that you've seen from, from the Trump administration on, on the report is the emphasis from the, the media on the worst case scenario in the, in the report, which is um, based on, um, I believe it's called the RCP 8.5, which uh, you know, 
is the worst case scenario, and it's, it's a scenario that the IPCC, even the UN's IPCC, is moving away from. Um, so it's, I think a lot of the, the worst case scenario information in that assessment is what's drawn the error of a, of a lot of people um, within the administration. But I think it's also important to note that you know, this report during the last two years of review um, had no political review by this administration. Um, we, did not, um, we did not review it. I did not see the report until it was released, for example. Um, and I've, I've been reviewing it since it was released last Friday. I haven't read the entire report yet, but I've, I've gone through it. I think there's a lot of interesting things that we need to follow up on and ask more questions about. Mm -hmm. um, but there's, there's certainly a lot, of, a lot of hard work went into it, and I, I want to thank the, the career employees who, who spent quite a few years working on this assessment. So uh, I take your point. There were multiple scenarios, obviously, that were examined in the report, including the, a lowercase scenario, which, which still projected, for example, that there would be billions of dollars in impacts from climate change towards the end of the century, whether you're talking about lo lost work days, extreme weather, and others. Having, having now had a chance to look at some of that report, do you see that lower assessment as laying out, uh, you know, a realistic projection well, of what could happen from climate change, and are there implications at this point, looking at what you've seen, <coughs> what would be the policy implications of, say, what's projected under a lowercase scenario? Well, e even the lowercase scenario that was emphasized in the report was the um, 4.5, I believe, and both of those um, scenarios downplay innovation, and innovation that we've seen already in the marketplace. And it also, uh, doesn't really give credit to the fact that we've seen a 14% reduction in CO2 emissions in the United States since 2005. In the first year of the Trump administration, we've seen 2.7% reduction in CO2 from 2016 to 2017. So I, I, I have some questions about the assumptions. I want to know more about what they used um, and, how they, and how they looked at some of the assumptions and how they looked at the, the um, interplay of technology and, and projections for the future. Because, you know, we've, with the 14% reduction that we've seen and the 2.7 mm -hmm. in the first year of the Trump administration, um, I think we really need to take a, a, a hard look at where the markets are going, where technology is going, where innovation mm -hmm. is going, and what has driven the reduction in CO2. And we need to give credit for that CO2 reduction. Now, as President Trump and others, including your predecessor, and, and I think you've noted that clearly the U.S. has made, for example, significantly more re reductions in greenhouse gas emissions in recent years compared to other countries, whether you're talking about major emerging economies or even some of the developing countries overseas. Uh, as, as we've seen, you know, they don't have, many of them don't have the same natural gas resources or have had the same rapid deployment of renewables. Now, at the end of this week, the president is headed to Buenos Aires, where at the G20, one of the major topics on the agenda will be climate change. There's obviously a communique that's being drafted. And from what we've seen of early drafts of this communique, it will mark a departure from, for example, earlier statements, some of which the Trump administration has differed with, which embrace the Paris Climate Agreement, talk about the importance of reaching those benchmarks, and instead will lay out the idea that each country should pursue its own path in terms of addressing the issue of climate change. Could you share with us a little what is the administration's thinking and strategy on both specifically this document, which the president will be weighing in on, and broadly what needs to happen in terms of an international climate approach, given that we also have the talks 
coming up in, in Poland within well, I'm gonna have weeks. to I'm gonna have to leave this document, the G20, to the State Department. But if I could just, from the EPA's perspective, from mm -hmm. our perspective, you know, we, as I said, we've reduced our CO2 emissions 14% compared to most of the industrialized countries have, have seen a 20% increase mm -hmm. in their CO2 emissions. Um, the president, you know, campaigned on withdrawing from the Paris Climate Accord. We are withdrawing from the Paris Climate Accord. Mm -hmm. We're still participating in the UN process. Um, I, I will have staff in Poland next mm -hmm. week for the, for the UN Climate Conference. Um, we're still participating in the process, but we are withdrawing from the right. Paris Climate Accord. And how do you hope to shape that process? What is, given, given the fact that, right, that, that we're exiting from Paris but still participating, what is it that the administration hopes to achieve through that international process? Well, you know, the, when the president announced we were withdrawing from Paris, he said we were withdrawing from Paris unless we can renegotiate a better mm -hmm. treaty. Mm -hmm. So we want to remain part of, the, part of the conversation in the event that the other countries are willing to renegotiate the treaty. And at this point, most of the industrialized countries that are signatories of the Paris are not meeting their obligations. Mm -hmm. um, we're actually meeting our Paris reduction obligations, okay. um, and we're, but we're not. We're, we are going to withdraw from the treaty. Understood. So, when you took the helm of the EPA in uh, early J July, in the wake of Scott Pruitt's resignation, you obviously sought to strike a different tone. You've you talked repeatedly about your experience in, as a career official and and recognized what career officials have done. At the same time, we've seen a massive staff exodus from the agency since January of 2017. And there have been many officials who have expressed unease with the regulatory rollbacks that the administration is pursuing at the agency. What do you do to uh, to really kind of set the EPA <coughs> on the course for the next few years and and muster the internal support for some of the work that you're pursuing? Sure, I'm, I'm not positive that the that the quote mass exodus is a result of the administration change. Well, there was an encouragement for buyouts that was in right. fact led by an uh, by a push have, to reduce the agency. We, we also stocks. have 40 percent of our workforce at EPA is eligible to retire over the next five years. Which is for any organization is is a is a huge challenge. Um, we are in the final processes of recruiting a new human resources director. We haven't had a full time human resources director for quite a few years now, mm -hmm. and that is one of the challenges. I, I met with with the leading candidate for that position a couple weeks ago, which I understand is unusual for the administrator to meet with a candidate for the human resources position. But I really view the human resources issues as very critical to the agency. Mm -hmm. um, we have some challenges as far as um, retention. Mm -hmm. We have challenges as far as as people do retire, making sure that the information that they've learned over the years is passed on right. to new employees. And we have challenges as far as attracting new employees to the agency. You know, there's. Um, I don't believe that the private sector has quite figured out how to. Um, how to deal with millennials, for example, and I know the federal government hasn't really focused on that at all. Mm -hmm. You know, most people who graduate from college today are going to have three or four careers over their lifetime. The agency, EPA, historically has been an agency where people go to work at the agency and spend their entire career, 30, 40 years sure. at the agency. And we have to be more nimble as an organization going forward, and that's one of the management challenges that I see and that I've talked to our human resources people and the person that we're recruiting to take over the helm at the agency for human resources. And at this point, do you see a good strategy in terms of, for example, bringing on the next generation, and do you have a sense of what's the right size for an agency where the administration, certainly in every bu budget document they've published, has pushed for to shrink, essentially? Well, um, 
the, the reason I wanted to meet with Human Resources Canada before we hired them is I wanted to make sure that they weren't blindsided on day one when I asked them, please solve this problem. Um, so I've identified the problems and I want to work with the human resources. I'm not a human resources expert, but I've identified that we had these human resources issues at the agency. And I'm very concerned about the, uh, I want to leave the EPA in a better position than in which I found it when, mm -hmm. when, I, when I eventually do leave the agency. It's one of the reasons why I visited all 10 of our region offices. And I've, mm -hmm. I do, I've done all hands meetings at all of our regional offices. And I've been to our two largest labs and I intend to go to the rest of our labs around the country over the next year. Um, when we finish talking, the California Attorney General Javier Becerra will be taking the stage with my colleague Brady Dennis, and he has, by my count, sued the Environmental Protection Agency a dozen times since uh, uh, since President Trump has taken office. It's been on a range of fronts, but one of the areas where he's been particularly aggressive in pushing back is the administration's push to freeze fuel efficiency standards for cars and light trucks um, <coughs> for six years, starting as of model year 2020. Why is he wrong when he challenges the legal basis for that, that proposed rule? Well, California is only looking at this issue under one um, policy agenda item, and that is energy efficiency or, or climate change. And um, our administration, we, we have multiple policy initiatives or, or policy um, reasons to move forward on the, on the CAFE standard and one of the overarching ones is is the lives saved and trying to get safer cars on the roads. Um, the Obama administration rushed through their mid-year um, um, evaluation of the CAFE standard in 2016. You know, they started the process at the end of November of 2016 and they finalized it before January 20th and that included a 30-day notice and comment during that two and a half month period. Um, they didn't look at a lot of the data, and there's a lot of data that was missing in their analysis. Mm -hmm. You know, some of the things that we've, we've looked at is the fact that the average age of cars on the roads have increased over the last decade. Mm -hmm. The average age of the people holding onto their cars is now 12 years. Mm -hmm. It used to be seven or eight years. Um, our proposal will get those older cars off the road, will encourage people to buy newer cars, which are both safer and better for the environment. Mm -hmm. um, we bring down the price of a new automobile by $2,300, mm -hmm. and we project um, there'll be a thousand lives saved per year. Mm -hmm. um, and the difference between our proposal and the um, Obama administration's proposal is, is um, minuscule as far as the CO2 mm -hmm. um, benefits are concerned. And now, as you're well familiar, EPA career experts disagreed with that safety analysis that you're talking about, which was prepared by the, um, by the Department of Transportation in, in certain aspects, including the fact that they questioned how they analyzed vehicles, miles traveled under the scenario with people, with people hanging on to cars. Is that to say that you, that you fully embrace the Department of Transportation's <coughs> safety analysis that, that came out in the proposed rule this summer? Well, we certainly had a, a robust discussion within the federal agencies before we put mm -hmm. forward the proposal. Um, I, you know, NHTSA, they have the lead on mm -hmm. highway safety issues. Um, we've taken comment. We've received mm -hmm. um, a huge number of comments on our proposal. We're going through those comments now. Mm -hmm. And we're taking a look at, um, at the underlying data that we use. We're looking at other people's data that they submitted to us. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure that the final regulation reflects the best available information that we can get. Got it. Uh, you're getting close to issuing a proposal to redefine a rule known as Waters of the U.S., which affects how developers, farmers, and others dredge and fill waterways, streams, and so forth. Uh, <coughs> given this is, this is an issue that has bedeviled administrations of both parties for years, 
how 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 close are you to issuing a proposal that your end? Could you explain how you think you're confident this could pass legal muster given the challenges this rule has had over the years? Sure, we are very close. I'm not ready to announce anything today. I'm sorry, but um, we are very close to to an announcement. And the, you know, the overarching goal for our for our new proposal on waters of the U.S. is I, I want to make sure that people can stand on their own property and determine for themselves whether or not it's a federal waterway. Um, in the past, people have had to hire lawyers or consultants to try to figure out whether or not their property contains a federal waterway. We want to make sure that the definition is clear and concise. We're following the Clean Water Act. We're following the Supreme Court cases. Um, and my goal is to make sure that we have something that will stand up in court and provide certainty to the American people so that they can tell for themselves whether or not they have a federal waterway on their property. Yeah. You inherited dozens of policy decisions from your predecessor, and two of the most controversial ones are decisions that Scott Pruitt made early on not to ban chlorpyrifos, uh, pesticide linked to neurological uh, damage in, in developing <coughs> uh, babies, and methyl chloride, a paint stripper solvent that has cost several Americans their lives. Can you share your thoughts on keeping both of those products on the market as they are now today? Well, the chlorpyrifos, we, we are going through our um, risk analysis, mm -hmm. um, which does take um, a, a couple of years to complete, but we're going forward with that. I'm not sure what the results will be at the, at the end, but we are certainly reviewing that, and we could end up um, banning that um, chemical based upon the risk analysis we receive on chlorpyrifos. On the methyl chloride, we are looking hard at that, and we hope to have a decision um, shortly. It's, you know, the, the questions around the methyl chloride are, are um, you know, basic consumer use versus commercial use and Department of Defense use. There's a number of different uses for the chemical and we're taking a look at where the accidents have been, um, whether or not the, the warnings have, have been appropriate on the, on the labeling and a number of different factors. But we'll, hopefully we'll have a decision on that shortly. And specifically, sorry, just returning briefly to this issue of the interview that the president gave the Washington Post yesterday. He, in in kind of great length, essentially dismissed the findings of the of the climate assessment, not just its projections, but the, the scientific foundations of what that report is based on. And so given that, can you explain what you're telling your staff, where the EPA stands on it, and, and what you're telling the, the American people on the drivers of climate change and its implications for this country? Well, why, why believe well, I believe that um, man does, does have an impact on, on the climate, that um, CO2 has an impact on the climate, and we, we do take that seriously. You know, as I pointed out, though, we've had a 14 percent reduction in CO2 emissions. You know, from, and I've, I've not had an opportunity to talk to the president specifically about the assessments since it came out on Friday, but from what I've, I've seen in the press, his, his main complaint has been against the, the projection about the 10 percent hit on GDP. And that actually is not in the report. That is. In the report, they reference an outside study that projects the 10% hit on GDP. And if you take a look at that study, my staff tells me that that study was funded by Tom Steyer, and um, they only looked at five or six of the um, environmental, um, I'm sorry, economic indicators for GDP, and you typically look at over 20 indicators or sectors. Um, so I, I do have questions. I've asked my staff to brief me on that aspect of, of, the, of the assessment. Um, I, I like to know a little bit more about that, but from what I've seen from the president's comments, that's been his biggest complaint: is the projection that it may hit the economy. And again, I don't think the assessment really took into account the innovation that we've seen and the technological advances that we've seen in recent years. And it um, it basically freezes technology going forward. 
And I assume you're familiar that, by the way, that the lower production, which still includes billions of dollars of damage from climate change, was largely based on an EPA 2017 study, correct? Yes. yes. Um, and, and so, you know, one thing you mentioned that you didn't review the, the report at all before it came out. Um, the, obviously, were, were you surprised that, for example, the president didn't and that, again, top officials who are setting policy for this administration didn't review this, pro, this, this report before it came out? Can you shed a little light about why, why, there wasn't, why there wasn't any kind of process through which you were examining, again, the products of 14 different agencies who were, were well, assessing where we stand on? Well, I, th I think if, if we had intervened and made changes to the report, we would have been accused of, of manipulating the, the scientific um, recommendations of the, of, the, of the career staff. But again, the report was mostly um, written prior to this administration in 2016. It's been going through review over the last two years, the, the peer review, the external internal peer reviews. Um, I, I don't think it would have been really appropriate. And I, th I think the, the, the drafting of this report was, was um, drafted at the direction of the Obama administration. And I, I don't know this for a fact, but I wouldn't be surprised if the Obama administration told the, the, the report's authors, take a look at the worst case scenario for this report. Because obviously they did take a look at the worst case scenario, the 8.5, which is, as I noted earlier, the IPCC is, is moving away from because of uncertainties with that, with that um, scenario. So I, you know, in, going forward, I, I think we need to take a look at, at the, the modeling that's used for the next assessment. I think we need to take a look at maybe it's more realistic um, um, projections on technology and innovation. Um, I, you know, I don't think we. Can, I don't think it's it's appropriate to freeze technology in in 2018 or in this case, I think it was 2016, and project that there will no be there will be no further innovations in technology going forward. Because I think there will be, and there has been. And but uh, since the report has come out, obviously you said you've been going through some of it. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have any surprise that, for example, the president hasn't now sat down on this report, or is there, you know, is there a plan in the works for you know the top heads of all these agencies to read this, have a meeting with the president about it? Is there any formal process that will come now that it's that's come out that you can speak to? I'm not aware of a formal process mm -hmm. in the administration. I'm certainly looking at. It. I've already talked to my staff about it. I've asked a number of questions. I'm going to be briefed on it further. Um, again, the report, of course, just came out on Friday. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, you know, I have a copy. I've been reading through it. I haven't finished the entire report yet. But mm -hmm. um, I have a number of questions about it, and I've, I've started asking those questions. And before this report came out, have you had any formal briefings, for example, with EPA climate scientists yourself about what research they're doing currently or, or you know, their assessment of what's going on, apart from, from this particular assessment? Have you had any? Uh, not specifically on climate research, but mm -hmm. when, I've, when I visited our labs, like mm -hmm. when I went down to RTP in North Carolina mm -hmm. and Ann Arbor, um, I've been briefed on different, um, by different scientists on the different work that they're doing individually. Got it. And with the Democrats taking control of the House of Majority come January, clearly one thing that we will be facing is oversight hearings that have not happened in the past. Can you talk about both how you're preparing for that and how you plan to approach a moment where the House of Representatives is going to be calling you and your staff, you know, in connection to a number of key policy decisions that have been made over the last couple of years? I, I'm Looking forward to the congressional oversight hearings. I, we have nothing to hide. Mm -hmm. Everything we've done has been out in the open, um, and I'm, I'm happy to I, I'm happy to, to to go into detail on our ACE proposal or the the 
forthcoming WOTUS proposal or our CAFE proposal. I, I think um, when the members take a look at the data that we use to reach the decisions and they examine the laws that we are implementing. You know, my biggest complaint against the Clean Power Plan was the fact that the Obama administration went beyond the, the Clean Air Act. Um, we're, following, we're following the Clean Air Act. We're following the Supreme Court cases. Mm -hmm. um, we have nothing to hide on the oversight. You've uh, talked a lot in this conversation and elsewhere about innovation, and one of the things you've obviously talked about is, is what folks describe as clean coal, in other words, more efficient coal plants, which certainly is something that your policies have promoted. Could you talk as someone who clearly worked for Murray Energy, one of the, as, as a, a lobbyist for one of the largest U.S. coal companies, what is the role that you see coal playing in the U.S. in the years <coughs> to come as, as well as globally? Um, Certainly. I, I will point out that I, I represent over 20 different energy and environment um, companies and interests when I was, when I was a, a lobbyist consultant. Um, coal has not yet peaked worldwide in its usage. It continues to expand in China, India, Indonesia, Asian countries. Um, and, you know, one of the criticisms I also had on the Clean Power Plan was it took the U.S. Um, coal industry out of the mix here which means that they would be no, we would no longer be developing cleaner coal technologies in the United States. Under our ACE proposal, we see a future for coal that will allow um, coal technology to continue to expand here, and that technology can then be exported to other countries. Uh, the, the Clean Power Plan would have basically frozen any innovation in cleaner coal technologies um, at, at the 2015 um, technology levels. I think by encouraging cleaner coal technologies here in the United States, we will be encouraging cleaner coal technologies worldwide, be exported worldwide, and you'll see a decrease in emissions worldwide because of the U.S. investment in technological advances. We're the only country that really invests in cleaner technologies as a whole, um, and our technologies are exported worldwide. And when, um, when I had shared on, on Twitter this morning that I was going to uh, do, this, do this event, one of the questions that someone tweeted back at me is, ask Acting Administrator Wheeler, what are three policies that, are reduce, that, that the administration's championing that are reducing air pollution in absolute terms, and three policies that are reducing water pollution in absolute terms? What would you say to that? Um, well, we just announced the um, lower NOx for heavy-duty trucks proposal a couple of weeks nitrogen ago. Nitrogen oxides. Yes, I'm sorry. Smog-forming pollutants. You know that that is. Um, you know, while we've seen um, NOx reductions decrease by 40 percent by 2025, a third of the NOx emissions will be coming from heavy-duty trucks, and we wanted to make sure that those reductions will help areas around the country reach attainment. Um, we are focused very much on um, non-attainment areas, trying to make trying to make sure that all of the communities around the country can reach attainment of our NAC standards. Um, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to give three off the top of my, my head, but um, on, the, on our ACE proposal, it's going to decrease um, CO2 emissions by 35% by the time it's fully implemented. On our, our CAFE um, standards, well, that's also live save, but it's, it's going to have an impact on pollution as well. Um, our new source review improvements that we've done there. You know, new source Although on, on the new source review, which has obviously come under a great scrutiny, there's, there's been a question of whether this is going to allow some aging plants to operate longer. And in fact, 
uh, you but know, the new source, or, or release right. more emissions. But the new source review um, process in the past has actually stopped um, companies from installing cleaner technologies. By allowing um, companies to install cleaner technologies without having to go through the entire new source review process, it's going to reduce pollution on a plant-by-plant -plant basis. On, on the water side, um, you know, we're, we're working uh, on removing lead from drinking water. We're updating the lead and copper rule. We hope to have the proposal out early next year. That'd be the first time that that rule has been updated in over 20 years. Um, we're working on PFAS and PFOA. Um, we have a national strategy that will be coming out um, shortly that will help communities um, reach um, drinking water standards and protect them on the PFAS and PFOA issues. We're moving forward on a lot of, a lot of regulatory initiatives, but a, a lot of cleanup of, of areas and assistance to states and local governments. And the, you know, President Trump, when he called and asked me to take over the acting administrator role, said continue to clean up the air, continue to clean up the water, and continue to deregulate to create jobs. And we're doing all three. Can you, um, I, I just want to delve in a little deeper to what, you know, obviously uh, former Administrator Pruitt declared a war on, on lead, and you just mm -hmm. alluded to that, and as well as the fact that there has been the summit on, on uh, PFAS, some of these other chemicals. You know, we're, we're, we're seeing these compounds pop up around the, the country that are linked to thyroid problems and others. Uh, you know, you have huge instances of, for example, schools and communities having to, for example, resort to bottled water that's going on. Clearly, there's, it's you know, taken <coughs> a great deal of time to come up with some of these proposals you're talking about. Can you explain you know, why, for example, with the lead and copper rule that it's taken as long as it, it has? And, and can you just shed any light on what kind of proposals EPA is preparing on these two really critical drinking water issues which, sure. which affect Americans across the country. Well, let's talk about the lead and copper rule for, for a minute. Um, again, that, the last major update was over 20 years ago. So the, the, the EPA has talked about updating that regulation for at least 10, 15 years. We are moving forward with it. And, and I will admit it would have been out by the end of this year, but I slowed it down for, for one really important reason. When I was briefed on it in July, um, my, my biggest concern, if, if you take a look at the lead infrastructure around the country, it, with the amount of money it will take to replace all the lead pipes, mm -hmm. it will take 20 to 30 years to replace all the lead pipes in this country. I was concerned about how we were prioritizing where we're replacing the lead pipes. I wanted to make sure that we could figure out a, a system where we could target the most corrosive lead pipes first, because I didn't want the last mile of lead pipes cleaned up 30 years from now to be the most um, corrosive mile. So I, I, I challenged our staff to go back and figure out a way of prioritizing, and first we have to um, catalog where all the lead pipes are in the country, which has not been done before. And then we have to figure out, you know, based on some analysis, based on some testing, what are the areas in the country that probably have the worst lead pipes so we can focus on those communities first. I, I don't think it should depend on your zip code on whether or not you have clean drinking water, safe drinking water. Um, so I, I challenge the staff to, to see if we can accomplish that. They're working on that. They think they can. Um, we certainly do a much better job now at, at a, approaching it so that we can get the most corrosive pipes replaced early in the process instead of later. If we had just gone forward with recommending lead pipe replacement, you could have seen communities with corrosive pipes waiting 20, 30 years for their pipes to be replaced, and I didn't want to see that happen. And other contaminants, such as PFAS, can yes. you give a sense of where, where you're headed on that? Um, PFAS, PFOA, that is a multi-agency effort. Um, it involves five of our offices. 
We have um, a, a draft plan that we um, hope to circulate through the interagency review process um, this week, actually, and have something that we can announce in, in early January okay. on a strategy to, to, to address PFAS and PFOA and the other compounds. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Acting Administrator Wheeler, thank you for joining us. I'm now going to hand off our program to Brady Dennis and Attorney General Javier Becerra. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.